Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jim Gindelsperger, author of Bullets and Bandages. Our guest today is James Gindelsperger. He is the author of this book, Bullets and Bandages, the Aid Stations and Field Hospitals at Gettysburg. Uh, when did you first start getting interested in the Civil War? Oh, gosh. Probably 25 or 30 years ago, I just started getting an interest in it, but... Uh, I never wrote a book until 1996 was the was the actual date of the first publication. Uh, but my wife and I have been going to Gettysburg probably for 25 or 30 years, um, half a dozen times a year. So uh, it's been a long time. Why do you go so often? Oh, we love the place. It, it just kind of gets in your blood down there. And we've made a lot of friends over the years, of course. Um, and. It's, it's such a, a, an inter interesting battle to us. Um, even though we've been going so often and so many years, it, it seems like every time we go down, we learn something new. So it's, it's always a learning experience. How is it that after all those visits, you can still learn new things about that site? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it just seems like we do. Well, what got you interested in this particular subject about the hospitals? Well, actually, it was my wife's idea. Um, just out of the blue one day, she mentioned while we were out, we were kind of hiking around, and she said, you know, I, I think it'd be kind of interesting, there's not many books that I've seen on field hospitals, and be an interesting topic, we never heard much about it, and I agreed with her, that it did sound like a good one, and I said, if you want to go ahead with that, I'll be happy to help you research it, so that's what we did, we started doing that together, um, not having any idea what we were getting into, quite frankly. We, we had seen the signs in front of many, many farms, and probably a couple dozen of them, and we assumed that was the list of field hospitals, and we turned out that was maybe one-tenth of them. Um, but we started doing the research, and, and we went to uh, uh, Gettysburg and, and did some of the, uh, the archives work down at the battlefield itself and went out to the Historical Society and places like that and found out there was much more to it than we anticipated. Uh, so it just grew, and, and we continued to work on it. And it got to the point where uh, my wife has always been in, interested in quilts, and she was also interested in doing a book on, on quilts and maybe Civil War quilts, and, and things were starting to overlap a little bit. And she said that, you know, I don't know that I want to continue at least writing about the field hospitals. We can, you know, they're interesting to, to study and look at. Um, but she was going to drop it. And I said, you know, we've done so much on it. Uh, I hate to see you not do it. Uh, would you mind if I took it over? So that's kind of how it evolved. Uh, she likes to do the research more than the writing anyway. So she continued helping me with the research. And uh, it went from there. Uh, I, I did the writing and, and assembled the notes and, and and went from there and got it, got it all put together and sent it in. Is she still working on her quilts book? Off and on. <laughs> now she's just making quilts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Now, you said that the, the, the buildings that are marked as hospitals are about 10% of the total. Is there some place where there's a list saying these are all the field hospitals that you could start from? My book is <laughs> probably the only place. Uh, we did, we did uh, I have to say, we did go to Greg Coco's book, uh, Vast Sea of Misery, which was kind of the Bible we found out of, of uh, field hospitals. Uh, but Gay, Gay, uh, the book was, was written many years ago before the Internet, so he really didn't uh, – he did a great job. Uh, I can't say a thing wrong about what he did. I really love the book. But I had the advantage of the Internet, which he didn't have, so it opened up a lot of avenues that weren't available to Greg um, when he wrote his book. So it helped us to find probably another at least 50 or so more than Greg had. But we did use Greg's book. As a, as a good starting point, because it gave us a place to, to launch from once we found out there were more than just those two dozen that we thought we had, and uh, uh, went from there. But, but Greg's book was a very valuable resource for, resource for, uh, resource for us. And in fact, I, I did a co-dedication um, uh, of the book. One was to my wife, obviously, because it was her idea, and she spent so much time working on this. And the other was to Greg, uh, because he really laid the groundwork for it. Do you know how many hospitals offhand you have, the number of them you have in this book? I think I have about 225, roughly. Um, what, what did it take to qualify something as a hospital? Well, you can ask 10 people that, and you'll probably get 10 different answers. Mm. Uh, I, I arbitrarily chose my own criteria. Uh, some were obvious. The, uh, Hospitals that were set up by the, the divisions or the corps or uh, regiments, obviously they were hospitals. But then beyond that, and then that's where most of them uh, turned out to be, places that weren't official hospitals, places where you know, a wounded soldier would crawl into somebody's barn or something like that. Uh, so I, I, I went from there and arbitrarily decided that if it had a doctor there, I would call it a hospital. Uh, and if there were more than two or three soldiers there, I would call it a hospital, and then really stretched it a little bit because I found some really interesting stories where people were the only, there was a single, single soldier there, but the story was so interesting because the book has got a lot of human interest stories in it, uh, either about the soldiers or about the people who hosted them. Um, the, the stories were just so interesting, I didn't want to not put them in, so I included them in the book as well. So the. Very arbitrarily uh, chosen, and as I say, you could ask somebody else and they would say, I have no idea why he would do it like that. Here's how I would do it. But that's what we did. Hey, your book is not just a, a list of here's this hospital here at this address and here's that hospital there, but you do have a lot of stories about individual people. Where did you find those right. stories? Stories were all around. Uh, we knew some of them. Uh, we have made friends with some of the licensed battlefield guides down there and some of the park rangers, so we had heard them over the years, but most of them we found just through going through the records at the Historical Society, the, uh, the uh, archives at the battlefield, and the historian there was just a, a, a tremendous uh, source of information for us. He since has retired, but he's become a friend. And we would come up with some of the most obscure things that we wanted to look at. And within five minutes, he'd have it back at the desk for us. He just was amazing. Mm. Uh, so we went, we went wherever it took us. Um, whatever kind of place we found the, these stories, we would go. Old obituaries, newspaper articles, regimental records. Um, 
just a myriad of places that, that we found these, these stories at. How long did it take you to put it all together? Probably, we worked on it off and on for probably about three years. If I worked on it from start to finish, I would say maybe a year. But overall, it took us about three years to, uh, to find some of these places. A lot of them are no longer there, so there's a lot of detective work that went on to it, uh, old maps and so on, and that was part of the fun of it. Uh, but uh, overall, overall, it took about three years, but actual work time, maybe one year. Did both sides have hospitals? Yes. Both sides had hospitals, and most of the hospitals treated both sides, even though maybe it was a Confederate hospital, but um, I hate to say nobody was turned away, but that was basically what it was. If a, if a soldier came in and he was from the other side, they treated him. And many times the, uh, the surgeons that were there were prisoners of war, so there were prisoners of, uh, uh, surgeons from both sides working side by side, and they would treat whoever was next in line. Can you take us inside one of those hospitals and describe if you had walked in on the day of the battle what you would have seen? Yeah, there were, well, there were a couple pla places that they had them. They were, they were in buildings, of course, and a lot of them were, were out in the open fields, so they were all, they were all different. Um, none of them very pleasant, obviously. The, the, the churches, if you went into a church that was a hospital, uh, you would probably find um, the pews were, were just packed with, with uh, injured and wounded soldiers. They would put tear doors down and, and put them across the pews to make operating tables. Um, public buildings were used, homes were used. Uh, the sanitation, particularly on the farms, was non-existent. Uh, medicine at that time was, um, by our standards, be pretty primitive. Uh, no, no sanitation, no thought about infection because nobody knew what infection was. It hadn't been uh, zeroed in on yet. So um, if you went into, for instance, let's go, to, let's take a barn or a farm, uh, they would maybe start out putting the wounded in the house, and when that filled up, they would put them in the barn, and when that filled up, they would put them in one of the outbuildings, and when those filled up, just laid them out in the barnyard, open to the, to the weather, and of course, all the disgusting things that are in a barnyard with the cattle and so on. Um, and the, the surgeon, they would bring the, the wounded man in, and just kind of the routine of how it happened. They would bring the wounded man in, and of course they had hundreds of them, maybe thousands in some of the larger hospitals, uh, and they would do a triage, um, pretty much the same kind of triage we have now, uh, a three-stage uh, triage. If you were wounded in the, in the head or the torso, um, you probably would just set aside and you either had to survive or you died. Uh, it was a kind of on your own. They would maybe, if they had enough uh, morphine or laudanum, or they, would, they would try to keep you comfortable as much as they could, but that was as much as they would do. The ones who were minor wounds uh, were set aside as well, and they could be treated at any point. So the ones in between were the ones that got first treatment. And they would be brought in, they would be laid on the table, and uh, the surgeon would, would probe the wound to see what, was, what the problem was, whether it was shrapnel or a bullet. And if he was a well-established surgeon, he might have a real probe. Uh, in many cases, he would use his finger uh, just to reach in there and try to find out what was, what was in there that shouldn't be. And it might be uh, shrapnel, as I said, it might be a part of a bullet, it might be sh shreds of bone, it might be cloth from the uniform, whatever was in there, uh, if you could 
pulled out with his finger, he would. Uh, and the finger was used in the finger uh, or in the wound of the guy before him as well. There was no, as I mentioned, no, no thought about sanitation. Um, just wipe their hands on their on their apron and, and go on. Um, at that point, he would decide what the treatment would have to be, and if it needed anesthesia, they would then they would go with uh, either chloroform or ether. Uh, chloroform was preferred because it didn't take quite as long to uh, put the person under. Uh, also, didn't wasn't as flammable, so and they worked around the clock, so they were working by lantern light, so there were a lot of fires as well. So they used what they had. Uh, in most cases, they had something. Uh, the, the, the old stories about biting on a bullet were pretty much Hollywood at that, at that point. There were very few surgeries in, in Gettysburg anyway that, that didn't have some kind of anesthesia. Yeah, you say something like 95% of the surgeries used anesthesia. Right. Which is kind at of least. a surprise. You're right. You, you, you hear about yes. the biting on the bullet thing. Exactly, and and that's that's one of the things that that uh, you sounded surprised, and I was surprised as well when I first read that because I had kind of fallen victim to the Hollywood stereotype as well: chew on a stick or bite on a bullet. Uh, and, and I'm not going to say that they were completely under because there was a shortage of, of of anesthesia, and many times the dosage was not enough to uh, put the person completely out, and and. They would often uh, have to have a steward or somebody lay across the body to keep the, the person from squirming too much uh, during the procedure. But they would, they would then go with the, whatever surgery was necessary, and quite often it was uh, an, uh, an amputation. Uh, most of these wounds were, if it was a wound to a, a limb, almost always it was an amputation uh, because they just couldn't salvage the bone. Uh, that was shattered by the, 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 the mini ball that was the most common uh, form of ammunition. Um, so the, the uh, amputation would be done, um, and when that was done, the, the amputated limb would be just tossed to the floor, and they would leave it there, work around it, kick it to the side until the pile got so high that um, somebody would come in and put it in a little wagon and cart and take it out. He'd either burn them or bury them. Uh, and then you're ready for the next patient. And then when that came along, the the uh, surgeon would just wipe his scalpel on his pant leg or his sh his shirt, and uh, kind of dry his hands on an old dirty rag, and was ready for the next one. Uh, bandages, often reused because there was a shortage of bandages. Uh, not so much at at Gettysburg, but at some battlefields, they ended up using corn husks uh, because they ran out of bandage material, and uh, so they used what was available, torn up curtains, uh, uh, linens in, in the farmhouses, uh, nothing sterile, just tear it up and, and stick it on. Did, did it ever get depressing working on this book, hearing all these stories about human misery? I wouldn't say it was depressing, but it, but it was very sobering. Um, particularly when we would go into a, a farm uh, we always, I always ask if I could take a picture of the house for the book. I, I didn't want to just take a picture without asking, uh, particularly in this day and age. I, I wouldn't want somebody taking a picture of my house and, and then driving off, and I'd wonder, what's this guy want? <laughs> so I'd always ask if I could take a photo. And generally, I would assume uh, you know, I need five minutes, ten minutes to take the photo, and I would get out of there. But in many cases, it ended up into a, a two- or three-hour uh, sojourn because they were so proud of 
of the house that they had or the farm and so excited about hearing somebody wanted to write about it that they would uh, take us into the house and show us where the amputations were done and they would pull back a corner of the rug and you could see blood stains still on the floor. So that was very sobering and, and you think about um, these people died here and right where I'm standing and it was very uh, sometimes emotional. I wouldn't say it was so much depressing but it was a, a very uh, sobering and emotional and, and, and the people, I, I can't can't say enough about the people of Gettysburg were just so gracious. Um, we would be invited in for lunch by people we had never met before. Uh, I went to one farm and the man was working on some kind of a remodeling project. He was working out on his porch. He had his table saw set up and a stack of lumber and so on. And I said, would you mind if, if I took a picture of, of your house? I know it was a, a field hospital. And he said, of course, why, why do you want it? I, I said, well, it's not just a touristy thing. I want to, I'm writing a book, and I want to, I'd like to put it in a book. He says, oh, he says, you don't want a picture of the place the way it looks right now. I said, let me get this stuff out of here for you. So he, would, he, he wouldn't even let me help him. He moved all his lumber around. To the, it's one of those porches that goes the whole way around the house. So he took it around the corner of the house, and he moved his table saw, and, and uh, we took the picture, and then we moved everything back. And he did let me help him move it back, but uh, it was just the kind of people we ran into. There's, they couldn't do enough. So a lot of these houses are still lived in? M most of them are, yes. Hmm. Most of them are, and, and many of them are, are owned by the people who are ancestors, the, the original owners who were there during the battle. Hmm. So they had some really interesting stories uh, to share from the passed down through the family. What would have been, uh, what would life have been like for the people in the town while the battle was going on? Terrifying. Um, Many of the houses in the, in the, in the town became hospitals uh, after the, the fighting, actually during the fighting even. Um, people would, would come back to their house and find soldiers lying in their, in their living room, their parlor, uh, their, their doors open, uh, blood all over the place. Their bookshelves were ransacked because the books were used for pillows um, for the wounded. So it was a and of course, all this is while fighting was still happening, and bullets flying around, and there were many cases where uh, windows were shattered or uh, an artillery shell would come through the house while they were in there. So it was a pretty scary experience. Most, most of them uh, would stay in their cellars during the day, during the fighting, and then would only come out at night uh, to come upstairs to cook meals or to sleep. Uh, so it was a pretty scary operation the whole time. Yeah, you have some pictures in your book about uh, today, houses with shells embedded in the wall, the right. photographs yeah. of those. I want to ask you about the, you, you mentioned the, the three different tiers of, uh, of injuries, and you say about uh, the lowest priority was given to those who had suffered wounds so serious that their chances of survival were considered unlikely. Well, this resulted in better treatment for those in the first two categories. It relied on the judgment of the attending physicians, many of whom had never seen a gunshot wound before. Now, were, were all these physicians real doctors? What did it take to be um, a, a, a battlefield physician? Well, <laughs> well it didn't take much. Uh, to be a doctor in, in uh, 1863, it was a, a pretty straightforward process. You went to school. There, and there weren't many medical schools, by the way, and there were very few hospitals around the country. The, uh, you were treated, you were treated at home. 
Um, but to be a doctor, you would go to the this, this school, and, and the schools were uh, not like they are today. They, they, they had four or five instructors, and they would sell tickets to those who wanted to come to the class, and that's how they were paid. They were paid from the proceeds of, of those tickets. And they would take classes. There were five different courses that they took, and one of them was uh, women's and children's diseases. So you can see um, that really wouldn't have much application on a battlefield. So uh, much of what they learned, like chemistry or surgery, was, was somewhat applicable, but um, they would only take those five courses for a semester, and then they would come back for a second semester of the same courses because they believed that repetition was the basis for good learning. So you took those five courses and you took them twice and you were a doctor. Um, that was it. Uh, no four years of pre-med and three years of medical school and internships and so on. Uh, you just became a doctor by taking those five courses twice. Um, if you lived near another doctor, you might be in a, uh, you'd work with them for a while, kind of a, an apprentice, but uh, in most rural areas, of course, there were no other doctors, so uh, you learned on the fly. And as we mentioned there, most of them had never seen a, a, a gunshot wound. Uh, they were dealing with illnesses and maybe accidents, but uh, nothing on the scale that, that we saw at, at Gettysburg where there were 50,000 casualties. Uh, so they really were, they were learning as they went and, and not even sure what they were learning. For instance, with, with sutures, um, many times they ran out of sutures material. So they used what was available and what was most available was hair from a horse's tail. And the horse tail hair is very, you know, not very pliable, so they would boil it. And found, uh, of course, in the process of boiling, it softened the hair and made it easier for suturing. But it also, they also found that those who had that kind of a suture seemed to survive longer or do better, not knowing that they were, they were sanitizing that, that hair when they boiled it. So they learned, but they didn't learn. They weren't sure what they were learning and what it applied to. Did the surgeons travel with the Army? Uh, some did. Uh, each, each regiment and each, each corps, had, they had their own doctors and surgeons, but the Gettysburg was so massive that they depended a lot on civilian doctors. Um, some were good, some were not. Uh, the Second Corps surgeon said that he had no time for any of them. He said they, they only came in the morning to get the free breakfast, and then all they wanted to do was cut something off instead of treating somebody, and he said they would then disappear. So uh, there were various skill levels, obviously. And of course, nurses, um, some, were, some were real nurses. The Nurses Corps was established, uh, got its real start in the Civil War by Dorothea Dix, but many of the nurses and caregivers during, these, uh, during the battle and after the battle with the field hospitals were just people who lived on the farm farmers, farmers' wives, so um, they had no medical skills of any kind. And it was just more TLC than anything. I want to read what you wrote about Dorothea Dix. You say, 61-year-old uh, Dorothea Dix proposed that women perform the nursing duties previously performed by men. So a woman nurse was a new idea at Gettysburg? Pretty much. Um, the thinking was at a battle, you, you had to remove men's clothing to treat them. and. And that was kind of the Victorian era of, of thinking. We don't women see want women seeing men with no clothes on. So it took some 
persuasion to finally get them to agree to use women as nurses uh, and found out they did an excellent job, obviously. Uh, they did more than nursing also. They, 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 uh, they treated them as nurses. They were nurses, obviously, but they also wrote letters for the men, wrote home, uh, letters home. Uh, they would sit with them and just kind of keep them comfortable. Uh, they would read Bible verses to them. They would sing hymns to them. So it was a, it called for a lot of compassion. And don't want to sound sexist, but women uh, seem to have much more compassion than men in, in war. Well, I'll read you something else you wrote. Uh, under uh, Union Secretary of War Simon Cameron agreed and authorized Dix to organize a female nursing corps with Dix at his head. Applicants had to be plain looking, could only dress in brown or black. A strict Unitarian, Dix decreed that only Protestants would be considered. Pretty strict rules. Yeah, very strict rules. And, and Dorothea Dix was not an easy person to get along with, apparently, either. They had a couple of nicknames for her. I don't know if you saw them in there. Uh, Devil in a Petticoat was one, and Dictator Dix was another one. Uh, most, most of the doctors didn't like working with her, but she got results. Uh, but there were many good nurses turned away because they were either too young or too pretty or uh, she thought would be distracting to the, to the men. I also want to ask you about this, uh, Dr. Mary Walker, a woman doctor mm -hmm. in the 1860s. Mary Walker was a, was a doctor. She had trouble becoming a doctor. Uh, again, doctors were men, uh, but she came a doctor and uh, ended up having to do volunteer work because they wouldn't let her into the army at first, and finally she did get in and, and uh, went on to actually uh, be awarded the Medal of Honor, not for work at Gettysburg, but her overall work as a, as a doctor in the, in the war. How close were these hospitals to the actual shooting? They kept them as far away as was safe, but close enough that they could get them in there quickly. Um, if it was behind a hill or in the woods or in a grove of trees or something like that, but they didn't want to be too far away, not with the official hospitals, uh, because that's where the surgeons would be closest to, and, and they would be able to get them, get them there. In fact, some of the aid stations were put on uh, the 32nd Massachusetts, for instance, there's a monument or a marker a plaque on a boulder up near the, the area called the Loop at Gettysburg, uh, which is right in the middle of the fighting, um, just a, a boulder that was between them and, and the, the actual fighting. Uh, but it was only an aid station. It wasn't for amputations or anything like that, but it did provide uh, some level of, of aid to the, to the lesser wounded anyway. So they, they tried to keep them uh, fairly close, but somewhat distant so that they, they would be safe. But there were... There, there were people shot and wounded and, and killed in, in the hospitals as well. Did you find any stories of, of surgeons being wounded or killed? There were several uh, wounded. Uh, one was killed. Uh, a, a, soldier, or a surgeon from Ohio was killed. Um, he was the only one at Gettysburg, but there were others as, over the course of the war. It was not an uncommon thing. Uh, who was Dr. Letterman? Jonathan Letterman. Uh, Jonathan Letterman was pretty much considered the, the father of modern battlefield medicine. He, he took over uh, 1861, or about partway into the first year of the war, uh, and took over a, a medical department that was very political. Uh, people were promoted on the basis of who their friends were, uh, didn't worry about whether they had skills or not, as long as they knew somebody. Uh, very disorganized. 
and he brought it into order, and he established a number of, of, of things that we think of today as standard treatment, but at that time was, was all new. Uh, ambulance corps, for instance. There was no, no such thing as an ambulance corps uh, before Letterman took over. Um, sometimes wounded were used to carry stretchers. Uh, musicians would be carried. Somebody would, whoever happened to be available, would be carrying the stretcher, and, and they may not know the right way to do it or where to take them or so on. Um, so he, he established an ambulance corps where everybody had a job to do, and they knew what their job was going to be before the battle even started. So it made it much more organized. Um, made the, the treatment more efficient. Uh, he organized, as I already mentioned, the, uh, the triage system, which is pretty much the, the triage system we know today. Um, he established a, a whole hierarchy of, of, of who should do what and, and promoted on the basis of skill rather than on, on personality or who you knew and, and just brought it in. And he was probably not well liked by many because of that, but uh, he made the, the whole system much more efficient. So the, the, the ambulance corps, there were people whose specific jobs was to get the wounded and take them to a hospital? Yes, right. How did they know where to that take was, them? Uh, well, uh, originally they, would, they didn't take them anywhere. They, they would uh, uh, wait till the battle was over and then it would sometimes take up to a week before they gathered the, all the wounded up. So you can imagine uh, if you were wounded lying out on a battlefield in, in the heat of summer or uh, heavy storm uh, rains and, and so on for a week, you know, feverish probably. So many of the deaths occurred probably in that week-long span. Uh, so the ambulance corps was actually, they actually went out during the fighting and started bringing them in. And the hospitals, the official hospitals, were marked by a, a yellow or a red flag. Uh, and many of the hospitals, or many of the farms and houses that were used, the people found out that was what they did. So they, they would tear something up that was yellow or red and hang it in a window to give the soldiers an idea of where they should, should come. And of course, the ambulance corps usually just took them right to the, uh, one of the official hospitals that the regiment had set up or the division. Um, of course, the, the battle was, was so intense and there were so many casualties that the ambulance corps had to supplement, and farmers' wagons were used. They would, they would bring them to a, a uh, collecting point, and the wagons were used to take them to uh, one of the hospitals. And, of course, some of the farmers were a little bit on the mercenary side, and they wanted to charge the soldiers to tr take them to the hospital. Uh, one in particular was uh, insisted on charging each man 50 cents, uh, which was a fairly decent sum to a soldier. And he made them sit up, no matter how badly they were wounded, because he could cram more into his wagon that way. So uh, it wasn't all peaches and cream uh, on the part of the people that lived here, but most of the people were very compassionate and, and did everything they could. But there were a few that, that uh, kind of stretched the limits of, of ethics a little. Did the, uh, the combatants respect the hospitals and steer clear of them, or, or were some some instances where the hospital was fair game. Well, they didn't intentionally attack hospitals, but a lot of times they over fire from artillery and so on hit hospitals. Um, but for the most part, they respected the fact that it was a hospital. Um, not too much, not too much that was a, 
a concern of if you went to the hospital, you could still end up being killed. A lot of the, a lot of the men avoided hospitals simply because their beliefs were that hospitals were where you went to die. Uh, but that was a different situation. Now, the ambulance corps, when they were out in the field, were they doing some of that triage themselves and looking and saying, well, this person can wait and that person's going to die anyway? Were they doing that in the field before they got them to the hospital? Not officially. Uh, I'm not saying they never did. Uh, most of the triage was done by the surgeons when they got them back to the hospital. Uh, but I would guess there had been some triage work done, uh, more on the order of if I'm a union guy, are you wearing a blue uniform or a gray one? Uh, I would put the blue uniforms on the ambulance first. Huh. Uh, I'm sure that happened on both sides. Was there a difference in the way the Union and Confederacy treated their wounded? I mean, was the Confederacy as organized as the Union, like you talked about Dr. Letterman's system? Well, they had a, a crude system, but it, it wasn't very efficient for them because they were on the move the whole time. Uh, uh, particularly much of their treatment was done while they were in retreat. So they were just treating people along the highway or along the road that, that they were retreating along. And of course they were in enemy territory, so they weren't getting a lot of cooperation from the people that, that lived here as far as um, assistance. Uh, they didn't know where they were, they, they didn't know where to get food or medications. Um, but there were a couple organizations, or many organizations that came uh, to, to Gettysburg after the battle, uh, U.S. Christian Commission, U.S. Sanitary Commission, uh, many other uh, uh, organizations, the Sisters of Mercy came, and uh, they were pretty neutral. They, they didn't see uh, uniform color. They, they took care of whoever needed the help. Did the Confederates take a lot of their wounded with them? Uh, not very many. Uh, mm -hmm. They took the ones that they felt could travel, uh, but altogether, between the two armies, there were about 21,000 uh, wounded left behind uh, in a town of 2,000. So you can imagine how that overwhelmed uh, the people. Now, when I say 2,000, that's in the town of Gettysburg. And, of course, all the hospitals weren't in the town. They were out in the outskirts as well. But even if you take that into account, um, the, the, the impact on the area of the people uh, was just immense. If someone is watching this program and they have never been to Gettysburg, or they have not been to Gettysburg since a school trip many, many years earlier, what do you recommend them doing? Uh, the first thing I would recommend <clears throat> them to do is go to the visitor center and get oriented, uh, look at the, the films and so on, and then hire a licensed battlefield guide. And I'm not a licensed battlefield guide, so I'm not drumming up business, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's the best way to see the battlefield because they will get in your car with you and go wherever you want to go. If you want to see where great grandpa Amos was wounded, they'll take you there. They'll know, you, they'll ask you what regiment he was in and they'll take you right to where he probably was when he was wounded. And they'll take you all over the battlefield so you will learn much more because the battlefield at Gettysburg uh, is so large. I mean, it's about 6,000 acres. Uh, you can't, you can't absorb it in one visit. Uh, and if you're only there for a day, uh, you'll see some highlights and you'll hear some interesting stories and you'll see some interesting places, but you're gonna miss a lot as well and you're not gonna fully understand the battle. So I would suggest getting a battlefield guide. Uh, if you can't do that or if you don't wanna do that or you're not comfortable with somebody else driving your car, uh, they do have battlefield tours uh, that will take you around and they're, uh, 
on a bus and you can and they're escorted and so on or you can rent a tape and there's a guided tour on the tape that will direct you here's where you turn go to the next stop turn left and so on and give you information along those lines so uh, if you if you've never been there before I always would recommend you do one of those three things you can try to find it out on your own uh, and you'll learn some things but it's going to be an uphill battle uh, I don't mean to use the word battle I guess <laughs> for choice of words but uh, an uphill uh, climb to to uh, to learn much about it because you're, it's going to have to be self-taught at that point and there's just so much to learn as I mentioned earlier on uh, we're still learning and we've been going there for 25 or 30 years what are some of your favorite sites there? Well, the absolute f favorite site is a little round top at sunset. <laughs> and, and we're up there with a couple thousand of our closest friends. <laughs> um, it's just a, a, an amazing site. And when you go up there, uh, th there are kids running around and there are people laughing and talking. And it's just a jovial atmosphere until the sun starts to set. <clears throat> Excuse me, it starts to set. And then the... Uh, Everything gets quiet, and it's just an amazing view to see the, uh, the sunsets in, in Gettysburg. I don't know, they must have them patented or something, but they're <laughs> very special. Um, and the people just kind of are mesmerized by the, uh, the sunset from Little Round Top. So that, if you ask my favorite place, that's, that might not be the favorite place, but it's one of them. But there are a number of other ones as well. Uh, Culp's Hill is interesting. Uh, the wheat field is very interesting but very confusing because it just changed hands so many times. Uh, even Big Round Top is interesting if you don't mind the, the climb. And it's an interesting uh, climb up to the top of that. Um, but there are a number of favorites and you'll, you'll hear, if you ask, again, you ask 10 people, you'll get 10 different answers. But uh, Little Round Top at Sunset I think is on everybody's A-list. How many books have you written about the Civil War? I've written uh, either by myself or with my wife. My wife and I have written three together, a uh, total of eight uh, or seven of them on the Civil War and one, I kind of stepped out of the Civil War genre for one and did one on uh, Arlington National Cemetery. That uh, was the one I did last before this one, but eight altogether. What do you, have you covered in the books? Well, the first one I did was on uh, the escape from Libby Prison and I did that because I found the grave of one of the escapees, and I just wanted to learn more about him, and uh, uh, started doing some research on him, and it kind of grew from there. And fortunately, at the time, things sometimes have to fall right into place for you, and that's what happened for me on that one. My wife was a tour director for a bus company uh, in Johnstown, and, and set up uh, tours that were going, they went once a month to Washington, D.C., and her boss was very generous and said, you know, we always have at least one or two seats on the bus. If Jim wants to jump on and go to the archives, the National Archives, to, to do the research, um, just have him to get on. Uh, and we'll, we'll take him down. So I, I would go. Once a month I was going to, to the National Archives, and I, again, things fell into place. I found the one person at the National Archives staff that was interested in Libby Prison. And uh, we became good friends, and he would... Uh, there's only one piece of, of information available on Libby because a lot of it was destroyed when the Confederates were uh, left the area. But the day book uh, was, was still there. It talked about which, which prisoner came in, where he was captured, what regiment he was in, and so on. And uh, he would 
he watched, he saw me for a while come in on the bus, and of course at the National Archives you come in and you don't just go, it's not like a library where you can walk in and take a book off a shelf. You have to order it and then it takes a couple of hours to be brought out to you. So at one point he asked me where I was coming from and I told him, he says, well call me the day ahead and I'll have the, the, the book out for you. So he saved me a lot of research time and, and uh, so I did a lot of my research at the National Archives and reached a point where I really thought I was at a dead end. I didn't, I knew there were 109. I kind of zeroed in on 109 escapees, but I, I only had maybe 89 or 90 of them. So I wrote to the National Park Service and I sent them the list of the escapees that I had and I, I said, here's what I have. Can you kind of fill in some blanks for me? And Bob Crick from the National Park Service uh, wrote back and said, we don't even have this much. Can we use what you have? And if you get any more, let us have it. And we suggest you try to get this published. So that's how the first book came about, <laughs> strictly by accident. And from there I wrote a, a second book was on uh, the Battle of Newmarket from the perspective of the cadets from VMI. And the uh, third book then was about the Battle of the uh, Kearsarge in the Alabama, uh, a naval battle off the coast of France. And then the next three we did together, my wife and I did together, we did uh, the first one was on Gettysburg, uh, go figure, uh, about the battlefield, the monuments, some of the men that were in there, why the monuments are where they are, more human interest stories. And that did well, and we had people say, why don't you do one about Antietam? So we did, we did a second one then about Antietam, and by then we thought, well, we have so much information we couldn't put in the first Gettysburg book. Let's do a third, a, a third book, but a second volume on Gettysburg. So then we did the second volume of, of Gettysburg. Uh, that led us up to the Arlington book and, and of course, then this, this, this last one. But along the way, some of those books won awards. Uh, the first book, the one that I would... I would like to do over, now that I know a little bit more about what I'm doing, because I really didn't know what I was doing at that time. Uh, but it won a number of awards, was featured on a Discovery Channel, and Warner Brothers optioned it to be made into a movie with Tom Hanks. Uh, you may have heard of that guy. Hmm. Um, and, and of course, they didn't keep it on the schedule. They kept it there for about four years, and I had the script all rewritten a couple times, and it's pretty well established, uh, and then decided that, that Civil War was kind of falling out of style for movies and, and they didn't think it would do well so they dropped it off their schedule. But I, I still have the contract I can, can brag about <laughs> for nothing else. Where, where was Libby Prison? In Richmond. So it was a Confederate it was a prison? Old, it was a Confederate prison for Union officers and uh, considered one of the most notorious of, of, of all. Uh, it started out pretty pretty reasonable if a guy knew somebody in Richmond, if he was a prisoner, he, would go, he could go to the, the person's house for suff, supper if he wanted to, if he promised to come back. But then they got a little more stringent and, and it got uh, pretty strict and of course then they ran into the problems with lack of food and uh, some of the guards were not the, the, the nicest people to be guarded by. So, uh, so it's considered a, uh, one of the more notorious prisons in, in the in the Confederate system. Now there's, I'm not, I'm not saying the Confederates did it all wrong and the Union did it right. That both sides were bad. Uh, you didn't want to be a, a prisoner of war in either end of it. Um, but I, Libby just happened to be the one that I zeroed in on because I found the, that particular person. 
How did the escape happen? It was a tunnel. They, they, they went through, there were two men that spearheaded it, uh, a guy from the 77th Pennsylvania and another one from the 12th Kentucky Cavalry um, that kind of ran into each other in a part of the basement that was called Rat Hell because it was just four rats. And they decided they would work together. And they tried, actually the tunnel that they escaped from was their eighth attempt to escape. The, the first seven, all something happened on all of them. Uh, either a tunnel would collapse or... Um, they would, uh, they dug it under a furnace one time and the furnace pushed the, the tunnel in and another time the tunnel flooded out and uh, one time they, they tried to just escape through the front door uh, at night and uh, were caught outside so they ran back in and uh, it was just a, a, a series of, of gaffes uh, before they finally hit upon the right, the right combination of things. and. And they had a, it was only, a, it wasn't 109 people that were in on it. There were about 15 that really did the work of the, of the uh, tunnel digging. And then each man was uh, assigned somebody to ask if they wanted to go along when they were ready to leave so that they kept the, the secrecy intact. And each one, was, as they left, would tell one more person. And, of course, word leaks out pretty quick when you're doing that. And they ended up having a, a mini riot at the tunnel entrance uh, people shoving and pushing, trying to get in first, but uh, they were able to get 109 out, and uh, the tunnel was discovered the next morning, so they could never do it a second night. They were gonna, the plan was to do a, another escape each night until uh, they, they emptied the prison, although they knew they wouldn't get that far, but uh, it only worked for one night, and then it was found. Well, getting back to your book, Bullets and Bandages, um, I wanna ask you about a couple of people you mentioned in there. One is French Mary. Yes, Mary Tepe. Uh, she, she was a vivandier. She just kind of followed the, the, uh, the troops, uh, served as a nurse, but she also uh, had a little capitalism in her, brain, in her, in her veins. She carried a, a, a little uh, vial of whiskey with her that she would sell and uh, some tobacco because she knew the soldiers all liked tobacco. So she was a, a bit of an eccentric. She dressed like uh, a man. Um, very, very much her own person. Uh, she was awarded a Kearney Medal for her efforts at Chancellorsville, and she says, I don't need any medals, and she refused to take it. So she just was a, um, kind of a great character of the Civil War. Another one was John Burns. He's the self-proclaimed hero of <laughs> Gettysburg. Speaking of characters, mm -hmm. yeah, John Burns was, was the hero of, of Gettysburg, uh, according to John Burns. Mm -hmm. uh, but although many people thought of the same. Um, he was the only civilian that really fought in the battle. He was in his 70s. He was a veteran of, the, of uh, I believe it was the uh, War of 1812, but he was, he was never in combat. But the uh, uh, battle started not too far from about a mile or so from where he lived. And when he heard the fighting, the, the rumbling of the guns and the, and the cannons and so on, he took his gun down and he told his wife, he said, I'm going to go see what's going on. And he went out to McPherson's Ridge and fell in with the Iron Brigade. And of course, they saw he had an old blunderbuss of a musket that, that really wasn't going to be very efficient, so they got him another gun and gave him ammunition. And uh, John Burns fought with the Iron Brigade, and he said he killed three Confederates, and there's no way of knowing that for sure. Uh, he was wounded in the process, and we know he was wounded, and he was either wounded 
twice or three times or four or five <laughs> or six or seven, <laughs> depending on who he talked to, anywhere from two to seven. And uh, uh, he, he uh, crawled his way to a friend's house, the Riggs house, uh, which turned out to be a Confederate hospital. So he refused to go in and laid on the cellar door outside, one of those outside cellar entrances, until he was able to, to get a wagon to take him home uh, to his house in, in town. Uh, and when he got there, of course, it was a, a, a hospital for Confederates as well. So the, the story is very murky after he gets wounded, because I say we don't know how many times he was wounded. Uh, we don't know where he was treated, because again, uh, at one time or another, he was treated on the field by somebody, or he was treated at a Union hospital, or he was treated at a, a Confederate, or a, by a Union surgeon, or at the Confederate hospital. Um, he also claimed that the Confederates tried to assassinate him in his own bed. They tried to shoot him through his window, and that's not been proven either. But but John Burns was uh, was a great character, and he did become known as the hero of Gettysburg, uh, to the point that when Abraham Lincoln came. Uh, for the dedication of the National Cemetery, he asked to see John Burns. So the two of them got together and they went to a, a, uh, a service at the, at the Presbyterian Church in town, or a, a rally, basically, uh, together. So uh, John Burns became a battlefield guide. Uh, we're not sure how truthful the stories were. He told <laughs> his, his customers, but um, he was one of the great characters. I have a friend who's a, a, a battlefield guide who actually did some of the review work on this book for me. And he's taken a project on to try to determine how many times John Burns was wounded. And all I could say to him was good luck, <laughs> because I don't know if anybody's ever gonna come close to that. But he's a doctor himself, so if he's anybody's qualified, it's him. Well, that brings up a subject as, as a historian. How often do you come across conflicting reports? Oh, all the time, all the time. Um, you have to be very careful. I try to use, and I always use, unless it's from a verified, verifiable source. Like if, I, if it comes from the National Archives and nowhere else, or from the Smithsonian and nowhere else, I feel comfortable in using it. But if it's in somebody's journal, um, I like to try to find corroborating information on that, just to feel a little more comfortable with it. There have been some good stories that I didn't include because of that. No, I was going to say there's some, some good stories that I either didn't include or almost didn't include because of that. Uh, one in particular, one it's, it's probably one of the most sobering stories I, I remember. It, it kind of haunted me for a while. Not haunted, but, but stuck in my mind, I guess. Uh, it was on the David Stewart farm. Uh, we had gone out to the farm to, to verify it was there and then to get photos of it. And, of course, in... in and my wife and I have impeccable timing. We got out there the day they were having a bluegrass festival <laughs> and we had to stand in line. It's a campground, so we had to wait in line uh, behind about 50 campers uh, before we could get in through the gate. So um, we finally got through the gate, and, and the guy at the gate wanted to know. We were there with just a car, no, no camper. <laughs> he wanted to know how we were going to camp, and we said, we're not here to camp. We just wanted to talk to somebody about the field hospital. And so he got the owner of the place, who I'm sure was very busy. I felt kind of guilty asking for him at that point because I know it was a very busy weekend for them. But he was very gracious and he showed us around and said, my great-grandfather was the one who originated this farm. And he said, I've got all his papers. And he told a really interesting story in one of his, his diaries you might be interested in. I said, yeah, I'd like to hear it. And he said, 
there was a, a young boy that was 15 years old, he was from Georgia, and he was shot in the face and had his eye shot out. And we treated him here on the farm for a couple of days and he passed away and we buried him behind the wood shop, which is, was the art orchard at that time. He said, you might want to use that. And I said, well, it's an interesting story. I, 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 I don't know if I can use it, but I, I, I'm glad you told it to me. And as I said, I, I, I don't like using one source information. Uh, and, but that was such a great story. And I thought, well, it's a shame not to use that. Uh, and I was considering it, and I kind of had ruled it out. And not long after that, one of our visits to the uh, Battlefield Archives, I found uh, the papers of a surgeon from the 77th New York. And his men had treated a number of Confederate soldiers along Fairfield Road on the retreat. Uh, the, most of the Confederate surgeons had retreated at that point. And he said, one of the stories that I remember my men telling me was about this young boy. And he said, and I went to see him, and he was, looked like he was almost like a young girl. He didn't shave yet. He was maybe 15 or 16 years old. And he said he had a piece of linen cloth across his face. And when I took that cloth away, he had no eyes. They had been shot out. And it kind of rang a bell. And I, I, I pieced the two together. That how often can this happen? How many times along? And in the same area. Uh, he thought it was on a farm adjoining the Stewart Farm, which... But he was from New York. He didn't know the area. And I thought, well, he could have had the wrong farm. And if two farms touch each other. So I felt fairly comfortable in that case using that story in the book. Uh, but many, many others, um, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't say for sure that they were uh, verifiable. And maybe at some point I can verify them, but I couldn't at the time. I probably had the book published. So they had to be left out. You say in your book that uh, the, and generally during the battle uh, or after the battle, soldiers were buried right there on the site where they died or around the hospital. Are, are any of them still there? Probably. Um, there, are so, there are remains found every so often. I think the last, last set of remains were in 1996, I believe, out at the railroad cut. Um, but there, there's, there's reason to think that there there are many. There, there are so many that are missing in action that, that I'm sure there, there are buried on the, body, on the battlefield even today that, that may still be discovered. I want to ask you about the, the, the last chapters in your book are about uh, field hospitals in areas that are s somewhat far afield from Gettysburg. One yes. is uh, Hanover, which, Hanover is one. which is 15 miles from the right. Gettysburg. So how did that figure into the battle? Almost the Hanover was there was a battle at Hanover uh, before the Battle of Gettysburg, mm. a, a part of the Gettysburg campaign. Uh, same with Hunterstown. Um, so so that was there were wounded there even before the fighting started at Gettysburg, and and again there were some that were brought there from Gettysburg uh, when they had no more hospital space. They were brought out to uh, the Pleasant Hill Hospital at, at Hanover for treatment. I want to ask you about General Schimmelfenning. You have the Garland, Garlock home would be the scene of one of the more unusual incidents of the battle when Union General Alexander Schimmelfenning had to hide in the backyard for three days. How do you get away with that? Yes. Uh, it's one of the classic stories of Gettysburg. He was, he was retreating on the first day of fighting um, by horseback, being chased by Confederates, and he turned down an alley, which turned out to be a dead end. And uh, he had no place to go, so he uh, 
in the process, his horse was shot, so he jumped over a fence, which put him into the Garlock backyard, and he hid behind the, uh, the slop barrel for the hogs. Um, later in the day, uh, or that night actually, uh, Mrs. Garlock came out to feed the hogs and she spotted him. And uh, so she was bringing him food and water for the next couple days. Uh, there, the, the original story, uh, as, as lore often happens, they make it a better story by embellishing it a little, mm -hmm. bit, little bit, was that he, he stayed in with the hogs, but that wasn't really the case. He was, he was behind the, the barrels that were there for the hogs, but uh, he, was, he was safe. He stayed there for three days until the uh, battle was over. There, there are so many books being written about Gettysburg. Well, what, what has not been written about Gettysburg yet? Ooh, Maybe you don't want to give much. away. Maybe you don't want to give away <laughs> no, any ideas no, for future books. No, I'm not, I don't have any ideas at this point. Uh, I think pretty much everything's been touched. I would, I would, I don't know if there's been one written about. I've often thought this would be interesting. Uh, a lot of the regiments had mascots, animals for mascots. Mm. Uh, some of them are, are well known. There was, uh, uh, Sadie or Sarah and and, and the old. Uh, uh, Old Abe and, and many of those, but but they had dogs, they had birds, they had all kinds of things were their mascots, and mm. and uh, uh, one of one of my favorites, and of course my wife's a, a dog lover, or so am I, but not to the extent my wife is, uh, Sally, uh, from the, the uh, uh, up on, on Oak Ridge, uh, fought with her men. She was she was an, a mascot, and stayed with her men, uh, even after the battle was was over after the first day of fighting that the 11th Corps had retreated. Uh, they noticed she was missing and they went out to look for her three days later and she was with her men, uh, pretty well emaciated, hadn't had any water, but she refused to leave the wounded. Well, and uh, she was she was a well-known mascot. We're gonna have to stop right there because we're out of time, I'm afraid. We have been oh speaking with James Gindelsberger. He is the author of this book, Bullets and Bandages, The Aid Stations and Field Hospitals at Gettysburg. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.